Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about the 2010s and asking some questions as part of our Decade Project. What were the key movies of the decade? Which filmmakers were doing innovative work? And what were the major shifts and big issues at play in the art form and the industry? We brought our discussion of the decade to our latest Film Comment Talk at Film at Lincoln Center. Joining me in our free discussion were Ashley Clark, Director of Film Programming at BAM, Devika Girish, Assistant Editor of Film Comment, Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image, and Alyssa Wilkinson, film critic at Vox. Let's go to the conversation and learn what the key movies were and why Upgrade might be one of them. Uh, just so you know, uh, movies we don't talk about will all be incinerated. So, so the stakes are somewhat high, you might say. Um, but where, where, where to begin? I mean, this is an issue where we... We did a poll, asked a bunch of people what you know, their favorite movies were, important movies, and we came up with a list. Um, also of filmmakers that kind of uh, made their mark in a new way in uh, the 2010s. But thinking over it, it's not that it has this, it doesn't have the same like, footprint or, or profile as like the 70s or the 80s. You can't really say, oh, that's such a 2010s movie. Or can you? Does anyone want to make a case for what a 2010s movie is? Or is, is a kind of fragmentation really just part of it, just like the, a glorious variety. Starting with the easy questions. Well, I mean, I don't know if this quite answers that, but it does, um, in thinking leading up to this conversation about the thing, places we might go and how to talk about films and filmmakers, um, there, one of the things that's defining of this moment, I think, is that every year when we have to come up with lists, there's a debate over what qualifies. There's a debate over what, uh, which, which is a film, what's television. And so I do think in some ways the films that might actually define that kind of transition or that confusion would be Twin Peaks, The Return, and O.J. Made in America. You know, these two epic pieces of either film or television um, that, you know, I don't, maybe the next decade these questions will be resolved somehow, or maybe they're just with us forever, but I do think this is the decade where that, that, that question began. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, the sense of a serial work, is it a serial work? What makes it a moving image work versus a film work? What's cinematic, especially since people are watching movies on small, smaller format? And I always like to point out, of course, that, you know, there are a lot of generations who saw some of the great classic westerns and other things in the 60s on TV, you know, um, encountered them that way. So it's not, you know, now we have another iteration of that in some way. But, but it's, I think it is different. It is different. Though. No, it's I didn't sort mean of like, yeah, what yeah. is it made for? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What's, what's its form, really? Yeah. I guess I'm interested in how um, curation will, will develop and how curation will play a part in that conversation, specifically with um, the changing shape of release windows, 
So mm. with Netflix putting out The Irishman on a limited theatrical release, and then maybe before you've had a chance to catch it, it's on Netflix next to, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Fuck-Ups or, <laughs> or the, the Confession Killer or something. Uh, and, you know, you, you're seeing almost an extremely high-end um, spin on the old direct-to-video thing. You know how it used to be a bit of a joke that this film went straight to video. Right. Now, now incredibly high-quality things are essentially going straight to Netflix. And, and just our, our perceptions of those, I don't have an answer for it, and it's a challenge for me as a, as a programmer to navigate these, these kind of shifting windows and perceptions, but that's something that I'm interested in tracking in the next decade as much as I have been tracking it in the past decade. Mm -hmm. And I think along with that goes, um, every time I think about, like when I was making lists of important films from the decade, I was thinking a lot about the discussions and conversations that migrated out of the movie itself. Um, and so, for instance, The Irishman hitting Netflix so early after it was in theaters um, meant that a lot of people were having a lot of opinions about it who normally would wait and kind of not be able to see it for a long time. Um, and that was really interesting. And then other films that um, caused flashpoints because people had a way of uh, providing feedback on the film in a way that maybe in the past you might have only sent like a postcard or a letter that of like anger to like a film critic but now you can tweet at them and you do all the time um, about sort of you know it, it kind of creates this interesting discussion loop that um, really wasn't present 10 years ago before Twitter in particular existed so I was thinking of films like yeah, like Ghostbusters, right, which really represents a flashpoint in discourse, um, but also just the way that the Irishman and Marriage Story in particular, like immediately people were talking about them, which was really unnerving for me because I'm used to getting like a good five months on everybody else, um, but also it might be better for the movies. I think um, maybe it is hard to define a 2010s film because of, you said, fragmentation. I mean, I think Partly, maybe it's also a matter of retrospect. It's difficult in right now to say what's a 2010s film, and I'm sure in 1979 it was similar. Um, but also, I think people do characterize this period in time as one of fragmentation. That's you know, I think that holds true to a great extent. Um, you know. It, you can think about the way in which the media landscape is being split into various corporate monopolies, um, the way there's like this unending glut of movies and television that makes it really hard to uh, get sort of a sense of what, you know, the, the core of it all or what it all means. But I think the flip side of that is also that because um, movies, I feel like, travel much more easily across the globe now and there's a way of accessing things and experiences that are maybe far from yours, um, much more so than in previous decades, that I think some, some of the fragmentation is also like an increased everyday awareness of the fact that there's a multiplicity of experiences out there and multiplicity of histories mm. and bodies of filmmaking and national cinemas, that sort of thing. So for me, one of the difficulties of trying to like figure out what a 2010s film is, is you know just being confronted every day with the fact that that question, or the, the answer to that question 
looks different to different people, not just because of differences in taste, but also because of differences in where you are and how you're accessing cinema and uh, what circumstances shape the way you think about movies. So I, I don't know, it's almost like, it feels like the, it's, it's, the decade is characterized by this sort of paradox, like this ungraspable paradox. And the movies that seem more, most like they will be remembered as movies from this decade, to me seem like movies that kind of try to grasp at that. So like Zama or Synonyms or, you know, a lot of uh, Western is a movie I put on my list. Mm -hmm. Movies that kind of try to get at those uh, that kind of um, hybridity of everyday existence and these untranslatable gaps between people's experiences. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's really interesting with, with Zama, which was the top of our, our poll, which is on the one hand, not, you know, not surprising because it's an amazing film of great ambition. Um, on the other hand, it's like, it's, it's a challenging film, you know, it, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's not like an easily digestible film, which is not a bad thing, but it's, it's almost, I mean, one interesting thing is maybe it's sort of in reaction to some of that fragmentation is the feeling of wanting to rally around someone who's really just putting it all on the line and is actually taking risks, um, you know, compared to some other um, films or compared to the more kind of, you know, uniform quality of a lot of, a lot of movies we, you know, you see in multiplexes or elsewhere. Not that, I don't know, I guess people who see Zama maybe are not, I don't know, not ca always catching up um, with the latest Marvel movie, but, um, but that's interesting to me. And it's interesting to see Lucretia Martel acquire the status of a kind of symbol as, as well as being a great filmmaker, like almost like Terrence Malick holds for a lot of people. And that feels like a more recent thing for, well, for her in particular, which is great. I think there's an interesting intersection with, with Martel um, being on the jury um, <laughs> that, that awarded uh, Joker the best, the, the top prize. I really hope that no one would say Joker on this panel today. <laughs> it took what, like three minutes. Um, but I think the elephant in the room potentially is, for a lot of people, the 2010s have been defined by superhero movies. They're fabulously successful, and, and within them, whatever you make of them, there's been some room opened up for productive debates about the extent to which obviously talented filmmakers like Ryan Coogler um, with Black Panther have the opportunity to um, input, you know, inject some character, some, some craft into what is already a pretty preordained landscape. And I think it would be remiss to kind of not mention the what because coming into the 2010s you knew it was kind of on the horizon but the sheer like um ubiquity of these films has been a really defining characteristic of cinema in this decade economically and visually as well again for good or bad but it's difficult to ignore them Some, somewhat related to that question is again i don't know how much this is still addressing the defining of the of the of the decade but on on, on that front um I, I've I've noticed there being kind of conversations in a very good way that had not been had before um, about basically the business of cinema at the same time as we talk about the quality of cinema, which I think are two really important conversations. But I also never know quite what to make of it, what, what to make of it as a programmer or as a critic, because they're not the same thing, you know. And so the fact that Orion Coogler is directing. Black Panther, who's the right person to direct Black Panther, makes it a film that it never could have been otherwise, and I'm so grateful for it. It is, however, still a Marvel film, and I wouldn't really like I, you know, I think differently of Black Panther than I do of 
of, of Ryan's other films. And so, and I think that's also fine, but there's a way in which, you know, I think Manola Dargis is, 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 a, is a critic that uh, has been really interesting on this front because I think she's kind of really taken a, a, almost a messianic uh, approach to um, the sense of equality and different change in terms of Hollywood, in terms of the movie, in the film industry. Um, but I don't always want my favorite filmmakers to make Marvel films. I don't always want to see that happen because I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing for them artistically. Though if they want to, please, I want them to have full access. I want them to be invited to make those films. If they have an idea like Ryan did, absolutely, please go for it. But there's a way in which that measure of success in terms of where we're going as an industry is not necessarily always to me the measure of success of, of, of what the films are. I will also say that watching Endgame, um, which I liked more than I expected to, um, felt like watching a series finale of a TV show, going back mm. to your earlier point. And there, I started to feel like, I don't know what it is yet, but in 10 years, I think I'll have a better sense of what I call television, which is named for a medium, but maybe it'll sort of lose that. And what I'll call cinema or film based partly on the kind of storytelling that Marvel is really, really intent on doing and the kind of storytelling that other filmmakers are intent on doing. Um, and part of that has to do with creative control exerted by the producers and all of those kinds of things. But mm -hmm. Endgame really feels like you're, uh, like here's the finale and now Marvel's very, you know, uh, purposefully kind of phasing us into the next season. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, you have those terrifying, like, uh, you know, charting out the next 15 years of releases. You just see your life flash before your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, birth movies, Marvel death. Um, yeah, I, I mean, one kind of mischievous thing that comes to my mind is that, uh, you know, if, if on one extreme you have the Marvel movies, like, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of art cinema, for lack of a better word, you also have the hunger for, to a certain extent, for really ambitious storytelling that's mm -hmm. expansive. So during the same period of time, you have these, you know, endless sagas in, 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 the, in the superhero space. Um, you also have a movie like Arabian Nights um, or La Flor, which have been really pop popular. And La Flor, which pretty explicitly mo models itself on different... I love that you just called movies. it popular. What's that? You called La Flor popular. Well, <laughs> but we're all friends. <laughs> Yeah, but that, that's that's. I mean, it's interesting that it's it's not like people don't want to hear that see these serial stories, or uh, sometimes it's nice to see them in different ways. And those movies are totally different as well, of course. But, kind of coming back to what you were saying, Eric. Um, I love Black Panther. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed that movie. But I also do. I feel like even if Ryan Coogler has had not been hired by Marvel and given its resources he would have made something I would have liked. And mm -hmm. that would have been as inspired and ambitious, but maybe not have had the same scale or more significantly the same reach. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. his craft may not have reached the same audience or as many people. And maybe that would affect the kind of opportunities he got, which are all, like you said, that's like the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also like, I don't always agree with the, argument that some people make, which is that, well, if not for Marvel, how would he have made this film? Right. Well, he would have made something else, and right. that would have been excellent too, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that's something that we do grapple with, with films like La Flore, which I think critics really do agree that it's like one of the defining films of this decade. Um, 
but then there's like questions of distribution and reach and how to get these films to enough people that they become like decade defining films. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I always kind of struggle with that because then, yeah, there's this totally economic kind of market side of distribution and exhibition. And it somehow, it sometimes like slides over into questions of elitism and access uh, and you know, what, whether, um, whether we can say that these are the best films because we were able to watch them. And and yeah, it, it's always hard to kind of tease out those things. Um, yeah, sorry, I, yeah. I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think just the question of distribution and reach and access mm -hmm. is something that people have talked more and more about yeah. this decade and it, it really influences how we talk about film culture. And I was going to say this is something that I think I think of all of us you grapple with the most writing for for a publication like Vox, where the question of who can access it is is a is a big question that you have to answer. And so on one hand, you know you can't be elitist by writing about something that very few people can see, and yet that means the other side of that. It's very when you flip that around and it becomes well, if a corporation has made it available, then therefore it's accessible. Yeah, I mean, I feel weird about Amazon all the time, but I there are films that people wouldn't be able to see if they weren't on Amazon sure. or like there's a whole lot of documentaries on Hulu and Netflix that I really actually want people to see. They it would never come to their hometown. I I'm always hearing from people all over the country who are like I would never be able to see this and I'm so glad it exists. And we should point out that, you know, Scorsese gets a Marvel-sized budget for The Irishman from Netflix and a three-and-a-half-hour movie, and every time I talk to filmmakers working for Netflix, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're like, they have to say this, but they're all like, they just wrote me a check. Nobody else would write me a check. They just wrote me a check and said, do whatever you want. And I don't know how long that will last, but we're getting some really good movies out of that. I think a lot about, the, the in the next 10 years, the idea of scale, uh, the ambition of scale at the conception stage. Mm. If you're a filmmaker and you know that the primary method of consumption for your film is going to be on the small screen. Um, how does that change ideas of what cinema is? We've spoken on, on a recent podcast about the advent of kind of stunt cinema. We're seeing that right now with um, 1917, the, the wonderful video game by Sam Mendes. <laughs> Some of the finest cutscenes you will. Um, but really, you know, that, that for me is an interesting... Um, a direction that I think that the bigger budget filmmakers are, are kind of palpably scrambling for some kind of scale, something to distinguish. Mm -hmm. What what makes this big? How can I compete with with Marvel? Right. Mm -hmm. um, how can I compete on the spectacle stage? And when when we you know it's a question as Devik you mentioned about access as well. You know Ava DuVernay has been a, an a obvious kind of champion and a spokesperson about the importance of access. You know you, people complain about you know, Netflix films not being shown in theatres, but there aren't theatres. We're in a, you know, London's okay, LA's all right, but New York is really an, an incredible place for, for variety and, and choice to see to see films, but nowhere else in the world really has that. So access is really important. And that, but, but then that aesthetic and conception development of that, how do you conceive for, for small screen if you're a filmmaker with big ideas? Yeah. I'm interested to see how that develops. And, and somewhat related to that is how... Um, so, so it's such an interesting moment to end the decade. In some ways, like I don't, I don't, we're reaching, I don't know how to define the decade, but it's an interesting moment for us to be looking back and also looking forward because somewhat related to this is also like 
not, maybe not on, the, on, an, on an artistic creation level, but on a distribution level, we're at a moment where like actually in an old, an old fashioned release strategy that the farewell had or that uncut gems had, or that parasite had their hits, their actual art house hits leaning towards blockbuster hits, um, that were released in a very old fashioned approach. Um, and so like that just puts a wrench in any kind of narrative that we're creating here about streaming, streaming TV, about we have to redefine what the theatrical experience is. And well, no, the, the farewell is not a movie that we saw on Sundance thinking this is a this is a blockbuster theatrical film that we I know exactly how they're going to release this. No, they they had an idea. They thought they could market it. They did the slow route. And it, and it made a lot of money, you know? Um, so to me, that, I, that I'm heartened by that because whatever narratives we want to come up with for what is this moment, I like knowing that, uh, you know, whatever, that tricks from 20 years ago can be just as applicable to how people see movies and why. Yeah, and I guess Parasite is, is another kind of example. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the problems with the way, you know, uh, corporate monopolies are set up is that they make people think like there are no other alternatives, right. you know? So people yeah. just talk in these generalizations and forget the examples that you just mentioned. Sure. And I mean, I don't want to, um, I don't want to sort of make like lack of access, some sort of romantic thing, but I grew up in a really small city in India with no repertory film theaters or access to any kind of repertory or foreign cinema really at all. And one of the re reasons I got interested in film was just by reading criticism in magazines and kind of building a mental library of films that I couldn't at that moment see, but mm -hmm. already starting to like have a list of films I wanted to seek out and then thinking about how I was going to seek them out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I like I wonder if this, you know, glut that's constantly at your fingertips uh, and, and the way in which it erases the things that aren't there in the sense that it when there's so much there, then you don't look for things that aren't there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it like affects the, mm -hmm. the something so essential to film culture, which is you know really wanting, seeking things out, looking for them, figuring out how to find them, developing personal taste. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> a movie that comes to mind. I mean, that's why it's it's. I think a, a movie we have to mention because it's it's amazing because it's a movie that maybe you might have had to seek out or would have been hard to find, but was you know a best picture winner, Moonlight. It's if you think about it, it's 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 it's, it's a movie that's so um, ambitious and it's kind of melding many different traditions of filmmaking too. Because you know Barry Jenkins, like you know registered Claire Denis, you know I, I love her, you know, and and there's so much of that in, in the film as well as well as other filmmaking strands. Um, and yet it's it's on like the largest stage there is. Um, and I don't know, when something like that happens, it kind of gives me hope that, you know, some things can break through the noise in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but I was also thinking, Ash, about what you're saying about um, stunt movies before, you know, or that are doing certain things. And there were like good examples of that, of that too, that of things that I think when a critics are putting together these lists, sometimes they think about these like boyhood, you know, sort of one of a kind thing. Or like under the skin, you know. Lock, maybe. <laughs> Perhaps lock. Lock is, is Are you on contractually your list, obliged to say lock in every single conversation. I'll never. I'll never tell. <laughs> lock, yes. Well, you know. Um, yeah, but it's, it's yeah, and and Leviathan as well, which is a whole other discussion, maybe. Well, and Long Day's Journey in Tonight, which yes. we talked about at the last podcast as well. Yeah. Sorry, Alyssa, you were about to jump in something. No. 
Oh, I w- yes, I was going to say, just because I'm in the middle of writing just like endless pieces about the Oscars right now, that it has been interesting also to talk to a lot of people about how they use Oscar um, international, the international category, formerly foreign language, and documentary to as their entry point into the year's films, because they're like, I don't know, a lot of movies came out. These are some that some people thought were good. Um, and... Um, there's some rocky stuff about the international category right now, but documentary has gotten really interesting over the past couple of years. I mean, in what universe does Hale County get an Oscar nomination? It should, right? But it's like, that's a, that's a movie that the Academy didn't use to, I don't think, reward in the documentary category. And um, so I think that like seeing some of those movies start to kind of surface in yeah. little places, as, as messy as the... Um, Oscars are, I think has been like pretty heartening for me. Yeah. And then, and, and, you know, it, you know, th- those things sometimes require like arcane little rule changes and of who selects them. Yeah. So there's, there's like work that needs to be done. Gatekeeping is still always, always an issue in, in making those films available. Um, but yeah, if we, if we can stick with nonfiction for, for a moment or, or all the various, you know, colors in the rainbow of fiction and nonfiction, um, I mean, that's unavoidably, it's, I mean, a, a decade that has something like, for me, like Leviathan, um, you know, the uh, Verena Paravel um, and um, Lucy and Casting Taylor mm-hmm. um, movie, and Camera Person, um, Kristen Johnson, those are just, again, like two movies that are just pushing the envelope, um, were extremely emotional in very different ways for me. Um, I mean, and, and peaks in, in, in the accomplishment of, of things, but also just two examples. And Kirsten's next film is going to Netflix, we should point out. So oh, that's, um, it's already been acquired. Just, they, are, they already got her. <laughs> yeah, I'm playing at Sundance. <laughs> She's been absorbed by the Borg. I think Camera Person is, uh, I, I love that film, and I, I mentioned it in my decade essay in this issue, which you what, can read what, what, if you so please. Um, and... You know, it, we were just talking about stunt movies in like 1917 and Long Day's Journey into Night. And those, the stunt there is sort of the capacity of cinema to transcend time and space and sort of achieve this magical seamlessness. And Camera Person is almost like a stunt movie to me because the stunt is to show the reverse and, you know, the unperfection of cinema and the ways in which. Um, contingency and affect and uh, and more personal aspects of of what it means to make a movie, what it means to even shoot an image in a given place at a given time can break through you know this seamless sheen of filmmaking mm-hmm. and so somehow that film actually does feel very representative of the decade to me it's it 's obviously hard to pin down any one film, but for me, I think that it film just captures a lot of what I think we have been talking about in this decade, which is making room for the personal, making room for the I, uh, investing cinema with more particularity uh, and a, a greater sense of identity um, and and sort of acknowledging that movies are made by people and you know people are specific to their circumstance and to time and place. So... Uh, that I, I really do think that camera person might be a, a milestone we'll return to mm-hmm. in, in later decades. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that, but I'd also make a case for a much less um, uplifting work, which is the act of killing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of 
um, as a bellwether f- for a particular decade. This is a in, a, in its own way, a film of, of stunts. It's a stunt film composed of, of many uh, kind of grotesque stunt work from its participants, but it's also a study of history as written by the winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a decade where, uh, you know, t- 2016, obviously Brexit and the, the election here and around the world, you know, we've seen a kind of remarkable shift and then the real palpable reality of culture, you know, with, with Brazil, with uh, in Brazil with Bolsonaro and, and uh, Baccarat and Kleber and, and governments really bearing down on the free speech of artists. There's been something that was a, a, a very unsettling precursor to all of that in The Act of Killing, mm-hmm. which is obviously an ethically challenging film. I get why people weren't into it. And I think that the follow-up, The Look of Silence, which is a lot much calmer film in, in many ways, equally harrowing. But I think The Act of Killing is, is equally a film which we, we, we will look back on as something very significant in this decade. Those are my co-selections for best film of the decade. Um, but I want to just briefly go back to, you started this, uh, Nick, by talking about documentary as being a sort of rainbow. I think it's actually, it's black and white. There's a difference between documentary <laughs> and fiction. And there's a hard line between the two. And there's really Thank nothing you. in between. Thank you for clarifying. There, just want to make sure you knew this. I've dedicated my career to that distinction. Um, but, but I think that there's something about, the films that we're talking about are, why documentary, I think, it's very, I, you know, it's always where do, where, do, where do any critics fit documentary in a list like this? How do they even begin to talk about um, or evaluate these works in comparison to, to some of these films that are made for, by a very, very different process? But there's something about these that I think speak to what documentary can do best or what works of nonfiction can do best, um, which is that there's kind of a singularity to them. They could only exist like this by these people. Like there's like kind of like the, the blowing up the Death Star quality too. It's like this crazy rebellious like swarm of impossibility and then somehow like you pull it off or like the perfect 10 and like a gymnastics move where you're like, I don't know how that person did it, but they stuck the landing. And there's something about these films which doesn't mean that they succeed or that they're flawless or anything like that. But you know, like a chem person could only exist because that person shot that footage over a long period of time and then constructed it in that particular way. Um, and I think that you know some of, the, some of the great works of nonfiction of the last decade, like Leviathan, speak to that. Like here's a moment where the technology exists and these particular filmmakers decide they're gonna make a work of like wild avant-garde cinema um, without dialogue um, on a shipping boat. Um, and, people have tried to make films like that after that, but it ha- had to start there, and that was the moment for it. And I don't know, there's just something, I guess the word I was thinking is just a sort of singularity to what, to what these films are. And if it feels like something else, if it feels like succeeding at something else that somebody else set the rules up for, it's not something we're gonna remember in the same way. I just wanna also say that, um, particularly in regards to documentary, that this is a decade in which everyone has become their own documentarian. Um, and everyone, you know, I teach undergraduates and it's wild to me how good 
um, their good, like their little documentaries that they're making with no experience are because they've been doing it since they were right. kids, right? They know how to frame a shot. They know how to shoot themselves. They also know how to, and Steve James told me this after he made America to me in which he was shooting in a high school. He said, oh, they know how to protect their image. Like they're actually quite good at that um, in a way that people weren't 10 or 20 years ago and it's going to be a challenge for documentarians. But I also think that those two films in particular call attention to the fact that with nonfiction cinema, we are by nature closer to what's going on on screen. Like we live in the same world as this film exists in, which means that it doesn't have the artifice of a fiction film. And that those two films are also top of my list. And I think that it's because um, they make us question the act of, literally the act of like seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Like camera person is a, is also about us feeling implicit, like implicated in what's happening and the act of killing is certainly about that. Um, and that seems to have been a big theme in nonfiction cinema this decade. I think partly because we are living in a world mm -hmm. where we've surrounded ourselves willingly with cameras and we are thinking about who gets to look and who, you know, and that's something nonfiction filmmakers are always interested in. But it's become yeah. way more important, I think, when any of us can whip out a phone at any moment. But I was just going to say, these are also films that invite the audience to participate in that, too, yes. which is what makes them, I think, even more extraordinary. Because yeah. they sort of, they, 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 because of all you're saying, they understand that the audiences can actually engage with that. I've said this many times before, but I was I once sat on a jury um, uh, f where we were debating camera person. I remember a filmmaker basically said, this is an elitist film, basically. This is not something that common people can understand. This is a filmmaker's film. And, and I'd already actually seen this film with multiple audiences around the world. Audiences got it. Like any audience that's ever sat through a documentary and then asked a question afterwards about how they made the film and what were the ethical issues involved in it, gets camera person it's not that hard and yeah. but I, but it is a, yes it's a work of a, it's a film that premiered at the new frontier section at sundance because they didn't even know where to put it because it seemed too avant-garde for audiences and here it was very nearly nominated for an oscar by, by the end of the year things have sped up i think and, and i think filmmakers like this have really understood that audiences um that, that their experience is real really part of what the, what's going on in the film get your copy of our january february 2020 issue of film comment featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Garish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Thinking about nonfiction film, um, I began to think about like other media as well and, and books. Because I think in the realm of in the publishing world, an interesting thing that's happened in the past 20 years is like nonfiction starts to kind of outpace fiction. Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes you wonder in film, like what is the role of fiction for us now? What is it? What is it? What is it feeding for us? Uh, and how is it working? Um, you know, do we want it to be a kind of pretty closely managed style of fiction, which is sort of how some of the Marvel movies sound, feel to me? It's a way of managing things. So like the narratives and the the, you know where you're coloring between the lines is pretty you know defined um, you know and you don't have like another development of 15 years is like 
not having the like the mid-level movies that might be exploring you know particular patches of experience um so I don't know. And some of those patches of experience have also migrated to television yeah, because definitely. of the ways television has developed as an art form in the meantime. I will also say, I don't want to go too far into this, but I, I've been watching as people have been talking about movies over the past couple of years. And I grew up um, in a very conservative religious community, and I started my career mainly writing for Christian publications. And the things I had to fight against were people saying, like, this movie must teach us a particular lesson or it is bad. And it's been really weird to see that surfacing again um, in discourse around movies, where if this person isn't punished by the end or doesn't kind of you know, this isn't represented this particular way, then it's bad. And there's lots of room for discussions about morals and ethics in films, and I'm all here for it, but it's been interesting to see that hardline discourse uh, pop back up uh, in the mainstream. I mean, it, it's like I get, like, PTSD from it, but yes, it's, <laughs> it's been interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, maybe, maybe we can have a word uh, also for, some people don't like the term, but like guilty pleasures. Of the, of the past 10 years? I mean, you know, movies that you might not put on your list, but are the ones you're secretly watching many times? Can, can I quickly oh, sure. put a pin on, because I was looking something yes, up on, our, on the list. This is the list of the, the 50, uh, oh, yeah. the critical consensus of film comment in terms of the top 50 films of the year. Available. I, I was, I was going to crack a joke when you said about fiction, nonfiction, like, you know, what's the role of fiction? And I was yeah. saying, well, the role, I was, I was going to joke in a dumb way about, I'll just say it anyway. Like, what we're crying for is more bombshells, right? We want, we want more, like, films based on real people, and that's what true stories are. But it's interesting when I think about that, how this is the time of year where like consistently a lot of the films that are in the conversation that are nominated for Oscars are these films based on real people that are from recent times. And it's interesting that of the 50 films on this list, I counted of the non-documentaries, three that are about real people. Uh -huh. um, and that's just, which is just interesting. Like, and there have been uh, dozens upon dozens upon dozens yeah. of well-celebrated films yeah. that are based on like recent people. Um, and I think that's actually quite interesting that on a critical side, that's not something we remember, but it is consistently yeah. what we celebrate every single year. It's true. Sorry so, for that aside. No, we're, we're comfortable in a, in, a, in a world of fantasy. <laughs> While other movies are grappling with reality, <laughs> we're, we're just floating on a fishing boat. In, in direct answer to your question, I watched uh, Upgrade the other night and really enjoyed it. Yes. I was really good. Yeah. It was a bit like Crank, a bit a bit Cronenberg. Yeah. Crank via Cronenberg. Uh -huh. yeah. He really likes it. <laughs> um, no, it's it's really something. Have yeah. you, has any of you guys seen it? Yeah. Upgrade, no? Plot summary. S quick plot summary <laughs> is um, a, a mechanic... Um, hang on. <laughs> Clearly it made an impression. A, a, a mechanic and his wife who works in a vaguely defined tech job go to a tech billionaire's house, lair, underneath the ground. Um, and the, man for, the mechanic for some reason gets a chip implanted in his back. As, as you do. Then his wife gets murdered and then he becomes a killing machine. There you go. <laughs> really enjoyed it yeah. upgrade upgrade <laughs> i've been really happy to see the resurgence of like the very classic shallow rom-com um because those are movies i really loved and then they kind of disappeared for like bro comms or whatever they're called and like raunch comms for a while and then they pop back up they're not i don't think i've seen any that i would call a good movie 
I think that's true. But I sure do love putting them on and just like zoning out to them. And also some of them are like genuinely bad, but they're kind of enjoyable to watch in their badness. Yes, I won't name names. names. No, please name names. (laughs) Well, my husband and I were talking about the movie he had recently viewed, which was, does it count? Wine Country? Bad movie. Real bad. Netflix movie. Um, Is that the one with Amy Poehler? It is. It shouldn't be bad. How do you spell wine? Uh, (laughs) Is it W-I-N-E? Yeah. Oh, okay. It is. I mean, they literally go to Wine Country and that's the movie. And then they like... (laughs) It's almost (laughs) Wiseman-esque. It should have been better than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, you're about to confess. No, I, 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 the problem, it, I, I could, but it's not something I've prepared because it, it really does fly in the face of how we're thinking about decades. But like, I think each year there's a handful of films that I saw that I'm like, was really into that nobody would ever really. Cats. No, <laughs> no, no. Steer a wide berth. I don't watch bad movies. <laughs> So I don't have anything to say. Well, I actually, but I have noticed how it's really hard for me to watch comfort movies or, you know, uh, to like find a movie that I think is going to be like brainless fun or those kinds of things, mainly because I feel very aware of the fact that I can only watch a finite number of movies before I die. And I don't know. It actually. But really? Is there only really actually a finite number? Well, you can't watch them all. We I, black mirror ourselves into having Eric, a chip. I, hate to break it I don't to know you. if you figured something no, out, but Eric I is have. immortal. That's that's. I only plan to watch like two actually, more for the rest of my life. For some reason, I mean, that does actually weigh on me every time I watch something at home, and that's just how the home viewing experience is now. I feel the way about books, but I feel that way a little bit less feel, less that way about films. But I understand exactly. what you're I saying. feel that way about books too, and something I've started doing is like abandoning books if I don't like them, which right. always mm. feels like a really bad thing to do. You should you know challenge yourself to read bad things but time all it's I always feel like I'm running out of time it sounds ridiculous but I do watch TV as a guilty pleasure and somehow we're full of contradictions I know so that much longer it's so much more of a commitment I know, and that's the thing it's like I will watch 14 hours of a TV show that I know is not good and somehow yeah. I'm not crippled by that same fear, we and need to, we need to have our brains studied for future generations because we're all well, now like we this, know the right? difference. We're between all like TV. this. I don't understand how this happened, but yeah, but I, I want to go back to the idea of guilt, though, as well. Like, like I don't feel guilt about no, any yeah, of this. I, that's I don't, not I re- my favorite. Reject part. the guilt in your, in your life, in my, in my entire <laughs> life. I'm a dangerous guy. <laughs> um, but to um, to <laughs> to go back to the, the framework thing, um, in terms of a, of a decade, in a way, this was like the decade where the jukebox musical started to creep up as a, as a very profitable genre. Oof. And I was thinking I actually really enjoyed Rocket Man yeah. um, because it it actually picked a, an aesthetic and a style, really stuck to it. I think particularly the scenes with. Um, Taron Egerton and Jamie Bell as as, um, Bernie and Elton I thought were great whereas you had something like Bohemian Rhapsody which was just this weird mess and really interesting that it became part of the Oscar conversation that's something I'm (laughs) interested in how that happened Um, but you know because they were financially successful there's now going to be a I think a Michael Jackson one (laughs) 
<laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Excited about um, and I think you, you'll see in that Mamma Mia as well. That was this decade, right? And they did a. All or was it the three of two? There was, there was a few of them, right? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, if that if they're gonna because they, there's a cash cow, right? Yeah. So I think we're gonna start seeing like the Foo Fighters jukebox musical. They're gonna <laughs> they're gonna replace reunion tours, right? And and the filmmakers might po- uh, and and Dave Grohl might pop up in a little cameo, you know, yeah. like at a cafe opposite the guy who's playing him. <laughs> I don't know, but I, maybe I should just go yeah, ahead and write this. Be, what you, you should I told you I was this. dangerous. Yeah, you got to pitch this. Yeah, but I think yeah. that that's an interesting another way to go back to the idea of spectacle and people mm-hmm. in a in a kind of oppositional to Marvel kind of way. How can we make a surefire hit and it's existing intellectual properties that can be exploited. Yeah. Uh, through a particular template and there's variations within that and I think Rocket Man was a really good example of that but I dread to think of how far these tentacles can spread. And it has to do also with the fact that corporations own both the back catalogs and the the right. movie studios like <laughs> this is not a good movie but the movie Sing <laughs> which I had the bad fortune of reviewing at some point a few years ago uh, the whole thing, you're like, what? why are all these songs in this movie? And then you're like, oh, they own all of them, right? It costs right. them nothing. So they're just harvesting their own material. Well, I'm, I'm, one thing about Guilty, another, my thought about uh, these Guilty guilty Pleasure films, however you want to call, talk about them, I do think that there's something, uh, I think time helps with this. Mm-hmm. I, I, we can talk about films from the year or recent years that, that maybe aren't good that we kind of loved, but I also think that another layer comes in the, over over time. Like I can think of films from the previous decade much easier in terms of, oh, I know that was kind of kind of a shitty film and kind of got bad reviews, but I have watched it multiple times since then. But it, I don't know, it just takes a little bit of time to yeah. get there. Like there's no way when The Notebook came out, I would be like, I love The Notebook. I love The Notebook. I do. I think it has some incredible performances. I've watched it multiple times. I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say this, but like there's, there's no way at that time I could have, you know, even felt that way, let alone, let alone thought that. Right, that you would actually mold your life around. My, my whole life is yeah. dedicated to the notebook. <laughs> lived in, in strange, refracted imitation of the notebook. It's like a two-hour and 20-minute film, by the way, too. I just think of one genre of movies that I don't necessarily think it's like guilty pleasures, that they're bad movies that I enjoy, but movies that are maybe more plain or obvious in their filmmaking and are not really challenging how I think about cinema, but that I derive great, uncritical pleasure from. I think whistleblower films mm. and mm. just like fil- like stories of protest and resistance. The reason I'm thinking of that is I saw Official Secrets on a plane recently and I just enjoyed every minute of it so thoroughly. I mean, not to say like I was laughing or, you know, it's very depressing, and but mm. also very rousing. And yeah. I think that's the thing, like rousing films. And maybe that has to do with how the world is and it can feel really like there is no space for resistance and you know and and it just seems like all over the world politics are leaning right and it's harder and harder to find a space for dissent that like actually makes a difference there's this i don't know i just feel very cynical all the time and so watching these stories of courage the report which i actually haven't seen but you know, that's another example. Mm-hmm. Just stories of individual or collective courage. There's um, actually, it's it's in our uh, best undistributed films list, The mm-hmm. Infiltrators, which oh, I saw yeah. at last year's mm-hmm. Sundance, yep. which also I love because again, it's stories of scrappy, you know, individuals who have everything to lose, who take on big powers. And those are kind of the films that I want to see, even if 
you know, it's taking away time from my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, do you need to go or something? <laughs> and then, then you have the, the opposite of, uh, of things like that, which is something like um, Nocturama by Bertrand Bonello, yes, which is yeah. the complete opposite. It's in a, truly a dubious piece of work, you know, it, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's it's as resonant as the films you're talking about, but in a in a purposefully ambivalent way, mm-hmm. and and I think there's there's room for those as well, mm-hmm. but they also depending on how the the political climate shifts, those films might come to be looked back upon as almost cravenly cynical, mm-hmm. in the same way that we look back at films like um, I don't know the, even the Post recently. Felt kind of cringeworthy. This kind of, you know, crusading journalists. Everything will be fine, in a time when things really aren't. But you know, polit- social political context unavoidably frames the way we look at films. I've obviously written and talked a lot about Bamboozled, which came out in two thousand, um, and I've long said that I felt it, it. It did really badly with with critics, and it didn't do very well at the box office. I've I've long said that if it had come out in two thousand and eight post-Obama, when people were talking about post-racial America, I think it would have done even worse because I think its message, its, its despair would have sounded even more of a clash with, with the times. Yeah. Now, of course, it looks like almost understated compared to what's really happening. So the way that you view a film, obviously, it's not a profound point to make, but it just does shift dramatically over time. So that's an interesting thing to to consider as we look back on this decade, within which fragmentation in many ways, how we consume, how we produce, um, how people have, um, through through reality television, have become so acquainted with non-fiction aesthetics and performing for the camera has has become part of our everyday fabric. I think that's all of these things come together to make a very kind of... um, strange 10 years to to reflect on. Can I throw in one film from this decade that does already feel prescient, which is The Congress? Um, Harry Fallman. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which is a weird movie, but... Robin uh, Wright? Robin Wright, yeah, so the concept of it is that it starts out as um, live action, whatever we call that, and she is Robin Wright, and she... um, is brought into the movie studio in the very new future, near future, and they say we're gonna like we want you to allow us to scan your body, and then we will store your image, and then you basically will we'll pay you a licensing fee, and then we'll use your image and star in all these movies, and then it spins off into this it becomes animated halfway through the film, like hand drawn animation. It's a very odd movie, but um, super prescient, especially like if you saw Gemini Man, for instance, which basically has Will Smith in the you know that situation. It's young Will Smith's face created into a mask that's sort of stretched over Will Smith. But I saw a Q&A with Will Smith about that. And he was, he's, you know, ha ha, this is great. There's a 26 year old me. I never have to act again. And I thought, man, do you know what you're saying? You are putting everyone out of like, this is an active move to make actors are pesky and expensive and they want things like food and water and like safe sets to work on. And if you can eliminate the actors, you know, if you can recreate James Dean to star in a Vietnam movie, which is happening because it's not going to happen. Well, I know, but quote unquote, we couldn't <laughs> find anyone else. Um, then, like, you know, yeah. We don't need actors anymore. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. But at the same time, like, we don't even have to like look to the future. Carrie Fisher has starred lead billing in three massive blockbusters yeah. in the last five years. I mean, it's or three years, excuse me. 
So yeah, we're it's it's happening right. And then Warner Brothers just you know signs this thing that uh, this contract with this company that basically will let you plug and play and play like fantasy movie with different um, actors and genres and things, and then it'll spit out what your higher box office will be in different regions. And then they're like, oh, we won't use it to make decisions about the films. And it's like, yeah, you will. That's exactly why you did this. And that future is like right here. And by ten years from now. Now, 2030, we're going to be sitting here going, like, remember when people made movies? I mean, it might be, it won't be that bad, but like, <laughs> blockbuster cinema, it's it's headed Un- that way, right? Un- unless actors and their yes. agents and their families actually draw a line and say, right. we actually don't want that future. Very yeah. few are actually saying that, but yes. it would it would require that. Yep. Yeah. What's I think what's interesting about this stuff is that. It's you know uh, just trying to like capture what people like and then make endless revenue out of it. And sorry, I'm making sort of an ungainly segue to what I want to say, which is in response to what Ash was saying earlier um, about films that make you uncomfortable in a certain political, social moment. And I, I just wanted to say something about that, which is that two films that have been really important to me in this decade are, are these two Indian films. One of them is Kala, and the other is called Fandry. I think Fandry showed at the Museum of mm. Moving Image at one point. Um, and they're both films by these pioneering young filmmakers from the Dalit caste in India, which is the lowest caste. And there's never been these kinds of like successful filmmakers mm-hmm. from that community making it, these films were like major box office hits, um, great acclaim. Mm. And they're also really inspired, ambitious pieces of filmmaking that have the vocabulary of mass appeal or, you know, sort of they have these, they kind of use formulas that are familiar to people that are, uh, you know, kind of appealing, but they also have an element that actually dares to make people or make like the dominant class uncomfortable. And that was, that's been really interesting to see, you know, these movies actually being widely enjoyed by people like Mm. across the country even though they are so unapologetically critical and even condemnatory and actually have like an element of almost rage in them. Mm-hmm. And even, I think to some extent, Moonlight also strikes me as that film. And that's definitely, I think, for a lot of people in my generation, that would be one of the you know films of the decade. Mm-hmm. I actually was able to see it see its premiere at the Telluride Film Festival because I did this student program and it was just like seeing the birth of a talent, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just such a great story to tell now. And I remember we had a discussion after the premiere and one person in, in the group said that he didn't like the film because he felt like it didn't make room for him. He couldn't find himself in it. And it was so interesting because I think Moonlight is to some extent a pretty universal film you know it's a pretty accessible film but it is a film that manages like within that framework to be so particular that it makes people who are watching it think about who they are and what position social position they're watching it from and even get out to me i mean get out is like the best example of a film like that which is easy to like and enjoy but it's also deeply discomforting to watch based on who you are. I mean, get out mm-hmm. of scary, no matter who you are. But you know, it for it really goes out there and challenges like this the dominant class or race or the dominant group in society 
to to look inward and, and feel uncomfortable about who we are. So that feels like a really significant maybe maybe it's not that significant, but it's been it's been really interesting to see some of these big pleasing movies adopt that kind of approach. Yeah, yeah I was maybe wanted to bring up Parasite again. Just because I'm interested in why that has had such legs and done so well. And, I, and I, I wonder whether it's because, to an extent, unlike Get Out, although people found ways to, to soften Get Out, you know, people would do the whole, oh, I would have voted Obama a third time, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and and it in some ways diluted the film's impact. But Parasite, I like the film, but it kind of lets everybody off the hook in a way. Do do we do do you agree or yeah? I, again, I think it's a good film. I, I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed many things about it. But there's something about it that not is not toothless, but it it doesn't um, it pulls some punches. I think to the extent that it's allowed it to become such a a mass market film, and that's not again not in yeah. not in and of itself a criticism. I do wonder whether that is true of an American audience more than it might be. I don't know the answer to that, but the interesting thing about Parasite for me is, again, it's a hit where people have to read subtitles, and the, and that's not a thing Americans typically do. And so the layer of like remove that that gives Americans might be part of that. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know there's been a lot of humming on the internet about whether or not Parasite is successful because people who aren't way on the left economically lo still love the film. Like, are they getting it, right? Um, and that's an interesting yeah. subset of discourse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still a movie that feels, I mean, uncomfortable enough and, and, and kind of stark enough in some of its tensions that, that uh, I mean, could you, what do you mean a bit, could you expand a bit on like, Letting us off the hook, in, in what sense do you mean? Like, well, in in a way that it's not like something like um, "Sorry to Bother You" yeah. by, by Boots <laughs> Riley, which <Yeah>. li literally <laughs> burn it know, all down. That is, yeah. you know, that's the most unambiguous. Yeah, um, and it, and and that film was never going to have the, yeah. <laughs> you know, you you know where you stand if you're a certain type of person watching that film right. and what Boots Riley thinks of you. <laughs> so I again, I just think that. Yeah. Parasite um, benefits in some ways from, I used the phrase purposeful yeah. ambivalence earlier, mm -hmm. and that you're allowed, you can project things onto it. I don't know, what, what do you think? Yeah. I do agree with you. I don't know if I have a totally articulate response to that yet either, but it's something I have been thinking about. I do love the film. I, well, it's just an excellent feat of filmmaking, of acting. It's incredibly enjoyable and suspenseful. So it's not hard to see why people would like it, mm -hmm. I think, even despite the subtitles. Although I think that is a good good point to keep in mind. To me, it feels like that film, um, it, like, it kind of makes a spectacle out of class difference and class struggle, mm -hmm. but doesn't actually seem to engage in class critique to me. I think that's the best way I can put it. I, I think there's there's a certain um, there's a way in which the differences in class of its various families and it sort of all culminates into like a, a 
a conclu- it, it culminates into a payoff that to me had more to do with the mechanics of the film than mm-hmm. with any politics. So, you know, it, it erupts in a way that is surprising and, um, and kind of goes farther than you would think and, you know, just uh, swerves away from the tone the film has been maintaining until now. But it's not actually any real sort of critique. And actually what kind of dampened the film's impact for me the most was the prologue where the son is thinking, oh, I'm going to grow up and buy this house for you. And I've heard different interpretations of that. But for me, that really dampened it because immediately it put this veneer of nostalgia and kind of romantic aspiration instead of, you know, going forward with the idea that anyone being able to buy and live in these kinds of spaces when other people live in basements is is wrong or is bad. I'm also just quickly, sorry, I just want to say that even I'm noticing in the way that I'm talking about the film, I'm being extremely hesitant because of something that's maybe developed in this decade in the discourse where you get you get positioned as a as a contrarian um or, or as a hater if if right. you put forth something that's slightly different to the to, to the dominant i suppose right. reading of a film and that's got a lot to do with the rotten tomatoization of right. film criticism and a lot to do with um the way that cabals um develop around certain titles sometimes around ideological lines as well and um so I, I'm feeling I'm being overly hesitant in talking about it. I actually like the film, and I've said that about six times now, <laughs> in a way to, you know, we're playing it at BAM, it's playing here. Um, but I feel like I should be free to, to yeah. critique it on certain lines without the fear of being called a hater. Oh, yeah, I just wind up, like, where I go with that is I, I just want, I, I can't imagine, and maybe this is just lack of imagination on my part, and maybe just a, a certain faith in where Bong is going with this, like, I can't imagine a better version of the film where the politics are clearer or where that the morality is more decisive. Um, the fact that there's entry points for various people from all walks of life to it, I don't think is a negative thing. Um, of course, it benefits from it. It benefits from the fact that large, larger audiences are going to come to see that film. They see Sorry, Sorry to Bother You. But I, I just, I just, I think that the art, I think, I think, there's one thing about the business and there's one thing about uh, how, how and why people might be responding, which I think is really difficult to pin down. And there's also just how we might look at this going forward and whether the contraption that it is um, for its am- ambiguities are, serve, serve us. I don't know. Like, I mean, the, other, the other thing that comes to, comes to mind on this level is the Wolf of Wall Street and how Wolf of Wall Street was you know, very much people are terrified of Wolf of Wall Street because it seemed to be celebrating something rather than critiquing something. And I think that, though I know how I feel about where the filmmaker's coming from in terms of whether where he falls in that, I think the film benefits from that from that ambiguity. So taking away the audience's power to interpret the film sure. in a way that mm. is true to, the, to, to them, to the audience. Right. And I think that's a dangerous thing as well. That, to, that maybe to, to allow the audience to interpret. No, not at all. Oh, no, no, no. To, to take a, to, to some take of the criticism away. of Wolf of Wall Street was yeah. almost like it was cut and shut. This is what the film is saying. Right. Um, and you've been duped as, as the audience <laughs> because right. this is pro-Jordan Belfort. Right. When in fact there's um, a variety of ways you can interpret that film. Yeah. Um, this might seem like totally left field and, and we actually probably will have to wrap up soon. But I mean, one other filmmaker that comes to mind with regard to how 
what a political cinema looks like or means is a, a pichapong virus ethical mm. because you know something like uncle boon me or, or really more like cemetery of splendor these are movies that um you know kind of enter a meditative or spiritual space but also underneath are saying are saying sometimes coded things about you know thai history and thai culture and um but it's interesting how sometimes you can experience one part of it and have no idea about the rest and um also also very different um, in terms of translatability some of that doesn't come across and in, in, in this if you read about it that's why you need film comment <laughs> um or it's useful um and so i don't know i just wanted to throw throw that in as well well and i'll i'll throw in kind of what i alluded to earlier which is that um i think a lot about ghostbusters in particular as a point at which like kind of the gamergate thing migrated into um, coloring the way that we talk about movies and also the ability to um, astroturf, which is to say it, it kind of invent an opposition that people then f fall in line with by uh, artificially inflating or deflating audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes for movies like Wonder Woman and Black Panther and The Last Jedi, often with political um, or like identity kinds of reasons. Re reactionary. Yeah, in a very bad faith yeah. way. Um, but that's something that has occupied like way too much of my time um, over the past five, four or five years is like finding out what is going on and writing about it. Um, but Ghostbusters, when they announced the, uh, you all know this, but when they announced like the, the Lady Ghostbusters remake, which turned out to be like just like a perfectly adequate movie and nothing more. But when they announced that, the whole thing blew up, right? Um, and it politicized an otherwise non-political thing. Now, Black Panther is a political movie for sure, but it's not merely a political movie for sure. Um, and the reactions to it were way out of proportion, right? Because it was coming from a particular really kind of heinous dark corners of the web place. And this keeps happening. You, you know when it's going to happen. We can see it coming down the, uh, the highway at us. Um, Birds of Prey is next. And, um, you know, and that really is a feature of how yeah. movies become political without really being political at all. Well, yeah, just the like old past decades forces of repression right. are, are coming in different forms. Yes. <laughs> um, um, kind of inverse of that. Yeah. Uh, Apichat Pong, and also Lucretia Martel. Mm -hmm. You know, like movies that become political without being political. And then these are movies that can sometimes, maybe not Zama, but the, the movies can seem apolitical. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you can't escape the politics. And the, what I really like about both of their movies is that I always feel like they deposit something in me that is ineffable when I'm actually watching the movie at the time, but mm -hmm. it stays with me, mm -hmm. like leaves some kind of residue and makes its point in ways that might not be spelt out, but they do lodge themselves either through, you know, certain kind of ellipses or certain sensory manipulations or it's very powerful suggestiveness and that I'm able to kind of come back to it later or that it slowly uh, becomes more and more illuminated to me. Mm. And Zama being the more recent example, I've there's so many tiny details of the movie that I've returned to and then uh, like what you were saying, Alyssa, about 
migrating beyond the film that's something i've done with zama a lot uh like this uh essay by esther allen in new york review of books it, esther allen is the english translator of the novel zama and there's this detail in the opening scene where there's women bathing uh by the sea and and they're mud bathing so their ethnicities are basically um indistinguishable because they're covered in like this beige mud and that's a it's such a small scene in the film i never really paid attention to it but then there's something like strange about it there's like they're speaking but it's not clear what they're talking about and so when i read esther allen's essay she mentions that one of the women is translating the a word in guarani into spanish mm-hmm. and so even though mm-hmm. you can't tell them apart racially while watching the movie if you know these languages they're linguistically being marked as white and indigenous mm-hmm. and that's actually like a theme that runs throughout the movie the ways in which um sound and also linguistic categories led to the essentialization of racial categories mm-hmm. that were much more fluid you know before mm. colonialism that sort of thing um why did i start telling you guys this oh just because <laughs> yeah and and so there i think these movies are full of these little details that might not be clear to you when mm. you watch them but they do they affect you in some way they stay with you and they inspire you to seek something more about the film and that leads you into history and politics and all sorts of interesting things mm-hmm. can i just quickly mention one of the um to to jump off the back of that mainly because i can't sit here and have talked about upgrade and not tony erdman uh-huh. oh, um yeah. which is uh a deeply political film yes. about intergenerational political conflict but it wears that politics very lightly mm-hmm. um until the, obviously the, the romania the, the the trip out into onto the farms um but it's exactly what you say you know it's it's a very pleasurable film it's funny incredibly funny i nearly died laughing watching <laughs> it um but it does leave something with you um and it does it in such an interesting way and such a gentle way that um that's a film more than any i think that stayed with me mm-hmm. uh, this decade that i wanted to go back and revisit because it's such a it feels very loose but it's also very beautifully structured as well it's almost mm-hmm. 3 hours mm-hmm. but it, it it's it's very tight within that 3 hours Yeah. and somehow improbably her second best film of the decade. What was the what's the other one? Everyone else. Oh. Um which is a film that I think was New York Film Festival 2009 but theatrically came out in 2010. Oh, okay. Um so. which I think is I mean I I don't know that it's very there are very few theatrical experiences I've ever had to compare to everyone else. If you've not seen that, if you've seen Tony Erdman and have not seen everyone else, it's my dumb opinion that whatever ranking things who cares but everyone else is a film that should never should not be forgotten in terms of this decade and yeah. um yeah. yeah well unfortunately we're running run to the end of our time um but of course there are many more movies we could have talked about um and i just want to encourage everyone to participate in our readers poll um of the best movies of 2019 uh which you can read about on our website we'll be posting a message about that so we can hear from you um and Beyond that, thank you all for coming and thank you to our wonderful panel. Thank you for having us. Yes. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.